My name is Michael Fueling. I'm the lead pastor here at the Village Church. If you would do me a huge favor this morning, um, if I mindlessly wander too close to the baptismal, would you just like shout out, stop? Because I can get very focused and then not realize what's happening around me. Uh, open up your Bibles to the book of John in the New Testament. We're going to be in John chapter 1, verse 1. And we're going to be spending the next four weeks in the first half of John 1. The title of our series is called Jesus in an Insidious World. As we last fall did our series on the spiritual realm and spiritual war, uh, this word insidious, I just could not escape it. It really captured so much of the heart and the schemes of the evil one. I, I wanted to find this word for you to make sure we're all on the same page. Insidious means proceeding in a gradual, subtle way but with harmful effects. When it's applied to a person or a being, it implies the intention to do harm. I mean, doesn't, doesn't really this just perfectly describe Satan and his crafty, subtle approach to trick and to trap person after person? I mean, very rarely is he tricking and trapping in overt ways. Like, he doesn't come to people and say, I would like to inject um, confusion, death, darkness, and pain into your life. Follow me. Usually it's insidious. Usually it is slow. It is gradual. It's done with trickery and with the intention to harm. So what John chapter 1 does is it identifies four gradual but harmful and terrible effects that occur when Satan gets his insidious claws into you or our culture. And we see these four things, confusion, death, darkness, intolerance. And it is into a world filled with that kind of insanity that Jesus, fully God, willingly as a volunteer, became flesh and allowed this confused, death, deathly, dark, intolerant world to murder him. I mean, I... I, I am struck by the Gospels. It is one story after another of Jesus meeting somebody who is confused, filled with death and darkness and intolerance, and then seeing them transformed by his power. Like they meet him and they experience forgiveness and then their life shifts. And I am so grateful because Jesus is not done transforming lives. He is currently moving people every single day from confusion to clarity about Jesus, from spiritual death to spiritual life to spiritual darkness to spiritual light, from utter intolerance to actually people who are filled with grace and kindness and love. But it's not just Jesus who's in this world. We are in this world, are we not? It's an insidious world. It is dark. I think you're learning by now, most of the people running the world, they're not for you. They're for themselves. And they will trick you and they will trap you, but it's all a plot and a scheme because the end of this is confusion and death and darkness and intolerance. I don't think Jesus has been better news for America ever like he is today because our world is rampant with this and he offers literally what our, our souls cry for. Show me truth. What is real? Show me life. Show me light. Give me grace. Like who, who out there says, my best friend is filled with confusion and death and darkness and intolerance. Our souls long for Jesus. 
And, and never has it been more clear to the masses that all the things they put their hope in aren't actually for them. So in the, in the series, what I want to do is I want to answer this question. In this cultural moment, how do, how do I bring the truth and the life and the light and the grace of Jesus Christ to our world? If I were to summarize most of America's view of Jesus, I think one word summarizes it. Confusion. So I know this is going to be a shock to you, but um, my personal goal has been to allow the Bible to form my view of Jesus. And if I could meet myself at 18 or 19 years old, I had taught the Bible a couple times, terrible, terrible, terrible messages. Don't ever listen to them. They're not on tape, thank God. But when you get to heaven, if Jesus says, you want to hear those? Say no, it's bad. If, if 18, 19-year-old Michael could be interviewed by me today, we wouldn't be on the same page about a lot of things. And that's just a fact. And so what's happened is I've had to let the Bible determine what is true and real about all of life and especially the nature and character of God. But when I meet people and they tell me that they believe in Jesus, I rarely assume we're talking about the same person anymore. Because there are so many fake Jesuses out there. And there are so many perverted versions of Jesus. If you just take, I don't know, a month of your life and you just listen to music and watch TV and movie and, and swipe on social media, it is unbelievable the amount of disinformation as if it is intentional and controlled by something more nefarious to get you to believe as many wrong ideas about Jesus as humanly possible. And we come to John chapter 1. And lo and behold, 2,000 years ago, Satan is up to the same old schemes. He is sowing rampant confusion everywhere. And he's got two particular targets. Anywhere the apostles or their disciples are going to plant churches or anywhere where they're going to bring the gospel. doesn't matter. Like if those two things are going to happen then here's what is probably going to happen. Satan is going to send messengers before or after them to sow confusion in the churches. So if you were a Christian in the first century, you didn't have a Bible like we think of Bibles today. The Bibles you have today weren't really like, I don't know, officially designated until about the fourth century. Uh, pastors and churches were trying to figure out which ones are apostolic, which ones aren't. And, and honestly, you might have been lucky to have one of the four gospels, let alone any gospels. And so here's what you're relying on. You are really, really hopeful that the messenger who comes to tell you about Jesus isn't nefarious with insidious ideas, but is an actual true apostle and messenger of Jesus Christ. And that's what you're hoping for. And the first person who comes to tell you about Jesus is probably going to form some initial ideas and thoughts about who he is. In fact, one of the ways that Satan uh, creates confusion is by injecting subtle heresies uh, throughout culture. And a heresy, it's very simple. A heresy is a false idea that if truly believed prevents you from being saved. Let me give you an illustration of a heresy. If you were to say to me, I am a Christian, but I do not believe Jesus is God, that is heresy, and it prevents you from actually being saved. So if you were to look at me and say, I don't believe Jesus is God, that belief alone, if you died, you would not go to heaven. 
It automatically prevents you from being saved. Heresies are really big deals. And so there are all of these close but very wrong ideas that Satan has injected into culture all around us. He's been doing this for 2,000 years. The moment he sees a group of people might be tender to the gospel, he starts implanting terrible, false ideas that lead to confusion and damnation. This was so rampant. Uh, In the book of Acts, chapter 20, the apostle Paul is talking with elders of the church of Ephesus. In fact, John would later pastor this church. And he says this, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And these are not carnivorous wolves. These are actually people who are gonna devour the souls of the church. But then he says in verse 30, listen to, listen to where they come from. And from among your own selves, the elders, the pastors, the leaders, he's warning them, amongst you, from your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away from Jesus' disciples. Isn't that crazy? John writes another book. In fact, John, who wrote John, wrote 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, Revelation. The guy was busy writing the Bible. He says this in 1 John 4.1. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. John is a pastor who loves this church. John is a pastor who loves to provide clarity about who Jesus is, and there is nobody more equipped. This guy had the absolute joy to be called by Jesus, to walk with Jesus through his entire earthly ministry, to be around with the death, resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus, to have planted and started churches and to pastor for decades long. If anybody knows Jesus, if anybody has the authority to clarify the confusion, it's going to be John. Let me ask you a question. Who would you rather hear about Jesus from, John or Michael? Please say John. Because he was there. Because he knows Jesus. And he's going to bring some clarity. John, his intent is to shut down all the nonsense. And that's why he wrote the book of John. If you're not a believer, I want you to meet Jesus. I'm going to write this in everyday common language so anybody can understand it. If you don't know the Old Testament, no worries. I'm going to explain it to you as we go. That's what the book of John does. If you know, have no spiritual background whatsoever, the book of John is the perfect place to start because it was written for you. And if you are in a world where all these bad ideas about Jesus are bombarding you, John is a great place to go because he's going to provide clarity. All right, let's go to John chapter 1, verse 1. And here's what he says. He starts off the book in a kind of interesting way. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So Word in Greek is logos or logos. Um, If you're familiar with the Bible a little bit, um, you'll know that there's a whole Bible um, platform uh, uh, software called Logos. We're not talking about that. If you were a Jew, here's how you would have heard in the beginning was the Word. The Word is the power behind all of God's actions. So when God created the world, what did he create it with? His Word. And so when God's Word goes forth, it proceeds from God, And it is powerful, all things in heaven and earth, angels, demons, everything you see, everything you touch, you yourself were created by the mind of the word and the power of the word. 
So as the word goes out, this is the control of God, the power of God. But if you were a Greek, if you were not a Christian, and you read this line, in the beginning was the word, you would have interpreted this very differently. If you were not Christian Greek, uh, they would use the, the, the term logos to define the eternal truth or reality. Now, if you're listening to that and you go, what does that mean? That's kind of confusing. It should be because they were confused. They, they didn't have clarity as to what it was. They just knew that there was something big, eternal, true, logical, that really probably transcends all of this. Is it a person? Is it a thing? We have no idea. But here's what we know. They believed in the logos. And so what John's going to do is he's going to bring some clarity to their confusion. So verse 1, I want to go back and I want to read verse 1, but I want to read it with you through the lens of a Greek, non-Christian reading this. Chapter, chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the logos, the original truth, the original power, the original creator, and the non-Christian Greek will go, yes, John, we agree. And the logos was with God, and they would say, yes. And the logos was God. John, I don't know where you're going, but I think we're on the same page. Now, remember, for them, the logos is not a person. So what John does in verse 2 is going to kind of shock him a little bit. He, the logos, was in the beginning with God. And at this point, the non-Christian Greek, when they read this, they're going to tilt their head in confusion and say, you mean it, not he, right? And John will go, mm -mm, I mean he. He goes on to verse 3. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. And they're going to respond in this moment and say, this feels foolish. This, this can't even be true. So in verses 4 to 13, John continues to explain this, but then he drops a bomb in verse 14. Listen to what he says. And the logos became flesh and dwelt among us. And at this moment, they're going to shout and say, that is the dumbest thing we've ever heard. That is stupid. That is foolish. That makes no sense. That is completely illogical. And John will look at them and say, I'm not done yet. Listen, we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Let me translate. I know the logos personally. I lived with the guy for three years. You would not believe the things that I've seen this guy do. And, and here, listen. Everything he says is true. He is eternal. He is God. And he became flesh. And he dwelt among us. If you want to know the eternal creator of the universe, you cannot know him unless you know Jesus. Foolishness. That's what they would respond. Utter insanity. They were not probably inclined to a message like this. But if their heart was tender, and if they would listen to the word of God and the spirit of God, they would slowly begin to realize God the Logos truly is Jesus who became flesh. Listen to how the book of John ends, very last verse, John 21, 25. This is how he closes his book. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books 
that would be written. Listen, guys, I was with him. I saw him. I walked with him. I heard him teach. I saw him do miracles. I saw him die. I saw him rise from the dead. I saw him ascend into heaven. I've seen it all. You would not believe the power of God bound up in this person to the point where it is clear he is truly, necessarily, the Logos, the God-man, all of deity here, present with us. If you want to know God, you have to know Jesus. And of course, the evil one was not going to put up with this. The evil one would sow confusion anywhere he could. And here were some of the lies that false messengers, false prophets, would actually bring into churches. These people would come in and they would say, I am an apostle or a messenger of Jesus. And they would say things like this. It doesn't matter how you live. You can get drunk, you can do drugs, you can have all the sex you want. Whatever you do in the body doesn't matter because your soul is saved. And so they would teach people, live licentious lives because it doesn't matter. It all burns in the end. Your soul is saved. Or they would say something like this. Jesus wasn't a real person. He wasn't fully human. What you saw die on the cross, it was an apparition. It was a ghost. It was a mirage. Or they would say this. Listen, Jesus was a prophet. He spoke for God. Don't get me wrong. He probably knew God. But it's not like he's a capital G God. Okay, even if he is, he's like, oh, God, not the God. That's weird. Like, why would, this is stupid. Why would God even become a human being? Why would he take on flesh? For many of the Greeks, the idea of flesh, it was evil. And they're like, that doesn't even make sense that the holy, righteous God of the universe would actually take on some sort of flesh. Now, do you remember the word heresy? Any idea that if truly believed prevents you from being saved. And Satan wanted to implant these heresies all throughout the early churches so that he could reap and sow confusion. Because when people are confused, nothing good happens. Read the story of the Tower of Babel. Heresies are always going to seek to do one of four things. And I want you to be aware of this because I want you to know how to spot them. Because if you know how to spot them, you can see them coming from a mile away. Number one, heresies almost always add good works to salvation. This is the most common. It's the most obvious. It is the oldest play in the book. In fact, what you're going to find is every false version of Christianity or any cult version of Christianity, they're always going to do the same dumb thing. They're always going to say... You're saved by trusting in Christ and being good enough. And the moment you hear that, here's what you should say. Heresy. That is false. That doctrine, if I believe it, will damn my soul to hell. It is not consistent with the gospel, the good news, the message of Jesus Christ. And so this is what they always do. Watch out for it. Anybody or any doctrine or any messenger who tries to make you rely on anything but the sole work and the blood of Christ and the cross is teaching you heresy. And they are implanted there by the evil one to confuse you. Heresies will always seek to reframe the nature of sin. Sorry, almost always. And, and sin is going to move in heretical movements from being something that separates you from God that needs to be paid for by the blood of Christ to you not living your best life or meeting your fullest potential. In fact, the sin of that isn't so much against God. It's against your own self because you are God. 
they reframe the nature of sin. And so now, really, you can do whatever you want as long as you're being faithful to you. You be you. You be your best self. Heresies will seek to redefine the miraculous. You know, you know you're dealing with something that will lead you away that is an implant from the evil one. When they start to look at the miraculous things in Scripture and redefine the miraculous and turn it into mythology. When they redefine it and they say, oh no, that was just a story that they made up to make a point about Jesus or Paul or John or Peter or someone else. And that there is this demiraculization that happens and their goal is to reduce your confidence in the word of God. But number four, they change the nature of God. And almost always typically to something smaller that really is more made in your image. You're not made in its image. It's, it's really striking that there are so many versions of God and what they do is they agree with you, always. And 10 years ago when you had different views on you name the subject, they happened to agree with you then. And now that your views have changed and you've evolved, they agree with you still. And in 10 years from now, when your views change and evolve even more, because that's what culture requires you to do, adapt or die, adapt or be cast out, they're going to agree with you then. Isn't it interesting that your God always seems to be made in your image? The nature of God changes. And John is intent to dispel all of this confusion. And he writes this book from personal experience to show you the real and the true Jesus. He is done with these insidious false prophets. He is done with these multiplicity of, of heresies just being salt and peppered all throughout his church in subtle and insidious ways. And here's the final word on the nature of Jesus. The real Jesus is the eternal God. And there is no other. There's not a multiplicity of gods. There's one, and his name is Jesus. The real Jesus, he is the creator of all things. And let's make this personal. He literally designed you. Your hair color, your skin tone, your personality, the context you grew up in, all of that. Organized, designed personality by Jesus himself. He's not just the creator of stars. He's the designer of you. The real Jesus, our God and creator, he actually did become fully human in flesh. And he did this because he loves you. To die for you in your place for your sins. The, the real Jesus is the only solution to reverse the insidious effects of living in this world of confusion, of death, and darkness, and intolerance. The real Jesus, if you will trust in him, offers you clarity, truth, life, light, and grace upon grace. And this is John's heart. These false Jesuses, they are not givers of light, life, and grace, and truth. All they do when you pour your life into false Jesuses is they foster more confusion and death and darkness and ultimately intolerance. I want to share with you two so what's. Here's the first one. I hope this is obvious. Resist Satan's insidious strategies. 
Satan uses four primary strategies. He's done this for millennia. In every culture, it's the same four things. And what you need to be able to do is you need to be able to rise above these. Now, some of you, you might say, I'm very mature spiritually. I am not susceptible to any of these things. All right. If you're so mature, then you're discipling people, number one. Number two, your children, your grandchildren, and those you disciple are unbelievably susceptible. So you need to get clarity on what the scheme is so that you can love, lead, and protect those who are under your authority and leadership. Satan's strategies for confusion, it's fourfold. Number one, confusion through a multiplicity of religions. Have you ever been to the Cheesecake Factory and tried to order off that dumb menu? Okay, I can make decisions left and right, up and down. You put that, that menu in front of me, I'm done. Like, I want to look at the waiter or waitress and say, you choose, there's too much. Like, I'm over this. I, I don't even know what I'm going to get at this point. I'm stressed. Then I'm like counting, like, how many calories are in this? What do I really want that? Am I going to get rid of this? And then, which bread am I going to have and how much? The white bread or the dark bread? Am I going to put butter on it? I'm full by the time I get it. I mean, you know, like, this is, do I get an appetizer? But that meal is $35. That one's 12 It's going to sell. Go there. You'll see. But this is the intended effect. The more religions, the more options, the more inclined we are to say, there's just too many, who could know? When the reality is 99% of them can be just put aside as ridiculous if you do a little bit of thought and study. In fact, if you're willing to be a little bit intentional with it, you will see that almost every false religion, if you think about it, and you read their literature, is insanity. It's not even logical. But most people were kind of stuck. And so the amount of people who say, I'm just, there's just so many, how can we know? And, and it's a, a reason their brain is actually shutting down. Satan's strategy for confusion number two, confusion through the reframing of Christianity in our culture. Decades ago, it used to be noble to be a pastor, to be a Christian, if you're in more urban areas, it's now evil almost sometimes. Jesus is a bigot. Uh, Jesus is way out of touch. And therefore, to associate yourself with Jesus typically doesn't make you look good and win friends. If you go to more suburban areas and rural areas, it's a lot more middle ground, a lot more kind. We see far in the West, though, that like this, this, this climate is changing. And this is on purpose because if Jesus ends up being nefarious and evil, who would ever even consider him? And so already, Jesus, if you go to a lot of places in the world, in the West, and in urban areas, people won't even consider Jesus because their preconceived notion is that he is a closed-minded, evil bigot. They're done. You can't even have a conversation. Number three, confusion through the rebranding of God's gifts. And God has created some very powerful and wonderful gifts for humanity. And so here's what happens. The Bible has very clear teaching. But when you rebrand this teaching so it looks different, it lessens the authority of God's word. Let me give you a couple illustrations. Sexuality has been rebranded from covenantal in nature, in marriage, to whatever you want and whatever feels good. Well, when you go read the Bible, it's very inconsistent with what the culture teaches on sexuality. Or you have gender and sex, which are supposed to be connected and are sacred and bring much glory to God. And they go from being very firm to being whatever you want it to be, which is fun for a while. And I get it. But then when you open up the Bible, because of the rebranding, you see that the Bible is actually not consistent with this. 
Or marriage, which went from being covenantal and permanent to being optional if you're not happy. This, this rebranding is all designed, it's all insidious. It's redesigned because now you grew up in a culture that says all of these things are open and fluid. And then when you read the Bible, it teaches something different and you just put it away because you said, this is closed-minded, this is bigoted, this is out of date, I don't want anything to do with that. It's all part of <clears throat> a larger insidious Agenda. Number four, confusion through implanting accusational questions about God. If you begin to watch a little bit of TV, watch movies, listen to interviews with actors, etc., musicians, if you begin to listen to the radio, engage in the news a little bit, you won't even know it, but there are questions that are being injected into the mind of everybody. And they're not activated usually until one thing happens, pain. Pain is the most dangerous, susceptible moment for a non-Christian and a Christian. Because you don't even know this, but questions have been pre-planted in your brain when you have hard, difficult pain in your life. And let me... Let me show you the summary of this question. If God was really loving, wouldn't he have stopped this from happening to you? What is the question designed to do? Is it designed to increase your confidence in God and his word? No, go back to the Garden of Eden. You remember when Satan says to Eve, did God actually say? And what's the intent of the question? Is it to increase confidence in God's word? No, it's actually to increase doubt in the heart and the nature and the character of God. So if you've been alive for a little while, pain is going to happen. But this question has been pre-planted in your brain and your heart so that when it happens, it rises up and your heart begins to question the motives, the character, and the nature of God. And I think God hates this because he's like, I love you. I am good. I am for you, and the question is designed to make you doubt the goodness of God. All of this is designed to keep you as far away from Jesus as possible because he is the antidote to confusion and death and darkness and intolerance, all of it. Here's just a simple like takeaway for you. Get to know obsessively the real Jesus by reading the Bible. And then deepen your knowledge of Jesus by being friends with people who have obsessively got to know Jesus by reading the Bible. And you will start to learn wonderful ways that you probably knew a lot of Jesus, but he's a little bit deeper and more interesting than maybe you thought. There's a lot to him. And he's incredibly endearing and he's full of grace and life and light and clarity and if you already know him as God, oh my goodness, spend as much time as you can getting to know your God and your Savior. And the more you get to know him, the more inoculated you will be against all of the crazy, confusing lies that are out there. So what number two? Be a messenger who tells and lives the truth. In a world where everyone is confused, John wrote a book. John wrote a book to bring clarity the vast majority of people you and I meet, they're not going to read the book. You're the messenger. 
And so you and I have the privilege to be crystal clear on the real Jesus. The real Jesus is fully God. The real Jesus is eternal, and he is the creator of all things. The real Jesus became flesh. The real Jesus is filled with grace and truth. The real Jesus offers salvation for anyone who believes. Anybody. I want to share with you the five most common fake Jesuses in our culture today. A long time ago, I asked my kids about these fake Jesuses, and I asked them, if Jesus was like fill-in-the-blank, how would you relate to Jesus differently? And so I'll share with you the fake Jesuses and how they said they would relate differently. Number one, there is the Santa Claus Jesus. He should always get me what I want. So when I asked my kids if this is what Jesus was like, what would you do differently? How would you treat him differently? And they said, I would ask him for stuff all the time. And then I said, what kind of stuff? And they said, toys. And this is how the prosperity gospel sees Jesus, like Santa Claus. Number two, there's the grumpy grandpa Jesus. He's irritable and upset, approached with hesitance. My kids said, I'd be afraid of him. I would avoid him. I would try really hard to make him happy. And this is how rules-based fundamentalism sees Jesus. Then there is the absent father, Jesus. He gave me life, but he doesn't care a ton about what I do. Functionally, I don't really live for him. I asked my kids, if Jesus was like that, how would you live differently? And then one of them said, I'd try to get away with a lot. And this is how many Christians with father or abandonment issues see Jesus. There's the pool lifeguard Jesus. You forget about him, but you're glad he's there when you need him. I asked my kids, if Jesus was like this, how would you treat him differently? And they said, he wouldn't be that important to me. And this is how many cultural Christians see Jesus. Number five is the overachieving coach Jesus. Worst-based performance-driven, bigger, better, faster. My kid said, I wouldn't like him very much. <laughs> I probably mess up a lot. And then one of my children said, I bet he yells a lot. And this is how actually many people view Jesus in our culture. How you view Jesus determines everything. John wants you to know this about Jesus. In John chapter one, verse four, he says, and Jesus was life. And that life, it was the light of men. In verse 12, he says, but to all who did receive Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to be called children of God. In verse 14, he says, Jesus is full of, of grace and truth. In verse 16, he says, from Jesus' fullness, from the overflowing of what's inside of him, we have all received grace upon grace. 
And one of my desires is to show you and give you a glimpse on the essential, true, real Jesus and then encourage you. Continue. Don't ever stop until the day you die getting to know the real Jesus through his word. It will be something that you never regret. And what we have the privilege to do is to interface with a confused world and to show them with our words and our life a way more compelling Jesus who offers to undo the confusion, to undo the death, to undo the darkness, and to undo the tolerance, and to create truth and clarity and light and life and grace. That is a compelling Christ, and it's the Jesus, the real Jesus from the word that our world needs. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, I am so thankful for your word. We get to read it. We get to study it. We get to dig into it. We get to analyze it. We get to parse the words. We know so much about the history and the context and the languages. It's really amazing. The amount of information there is that you have intentionally revealed through your apostles. I want to thank you for John. He lived a long life. And there's one thing John knew. It was that you loved him. I even loved how he called himself the, the, apostle, or the disciple whom Jesus loved. There's something about you that even despite his failures and all the ridiculous things that he had done before he met you and even after that, when he thought of you, he thought of grace and truth and light and love. Father, there might be a foe Jesus that we have believed in. God, I pray that you would help us just eradicate the fake concepts of you that are not real so that we might know the true and real Jesus as revealed in your word. Thank you for our time together, the opportunity to worship. And, and even right now, I am very excited that we get to see Curio baptized and we get to celebrate that you have entered her life and she has trusted you as her God and her savior and her creator. And she has confessed and believes that you love her and died for her and was raised from the dead. I'm just so thankful for her story and what you've done in her life and in so many more lives in this church and in this world. We love you. We praise you. We worship you now. We do this in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Amen.